0: Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, If you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Titus. So we'll continue there tonight. Uh, First, I want to have a word of prayer to open up our time um, as we get into God's Word tonight. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for this evening. Uh, We thank you, Lord, for the gathering of believers We thank you for the gift of singing, um, and Lord, the gift of your word, which we can not only possess in physical copies, Lord, but that we can hide in our hearts. We thank you for your help in that, we pray for your help tonight as we study, Lord, that uh, your word would teach us, instruct us how to think. And behave, or do we will be reminded of your greatness, your glory, and the gift of salvation through Christ? And we thank you, Lord, that He is our firm foundation. We'll praise you for it. In His name, amen. Well, last week I did an introduction to Paul's letter to his friend, um, his brother, and his fellow worker in the gospel, Titus. Titus was his his good friend. Um, we pointed out the kind of relationship that the two of them had. It was actually beyond friendship even and was more something like a father-son relationship. We learned that this is one of Paul's pastoral epistles, a letter from Paul, who's a pastor or elder, to Titus, who's also a pastor or elder, and written somewhere between 63-66 AD, um, and this would have been Paul's second-to-last letter before he wrote Second Timothy, uh, before he gave his life for Christ, his life was taken from him. Um, we looked at several things that Paul said in his other letters about Titus, so they could learn a little bit about Titus and about his relationship with Paul, how important he was to him personally and in his ministry. Um, We talked about the fact that all the mentions that we have of Titus in the New Testament are from Paul's letters. And probably by the time he wrote this, they had been uh, friends, fellow workers in the gospel for at least 20 years. Um, We talked about the fact that Titus was on the island of Crete when he received this letter from Paul. In fact, the letter is regarding the churches on the island uh, of Crete, and what Paul wanted Titus to accomplish there, they had previously been on the island together, but Paul left Titus there for a purpose. and do you remember what was that specific purpose that Paul left Titus there to do? Right to establish, to appoint elders in all the churches? Um, Paul had previously given him specific instructions on how to to do this, though, he doesn't doesn't uh, repeat those instructions in this letter. Um, he does give Titus the requirements or qualifications for elders, though. And also, I wanted to touch on something. At the end last week, during our Q&A, a question came up about the church on Crete and if it was still existing today. So I did a little bit of research um, and found that, uh, of course, like a lot of places, Crete has changed hands many times over the centuries um, many different superpowers have been in control of the island and it has changed hands through different wars over time um, and it from what i can see there's somewhere over six hundred thousand people on the island uh, and a quarter of them live in the capital city alone um, and uh, which i started trying to formulate in my mind what does that look like and i saw a I started looking at some other statistics, and it seems like about the same amount of people live in Portland as are on the island of Crete. And then looking at Los Angeles, it has five times the amount of people in Los Angeles that are on the whole island of Crete. And as in most places over time, other religious systems have come in and they've come and gone on the island. Some have stuck around, Um, and uh, Islam has been there. It's had a major effect on the island through the years and is still there, but Christianity is still there as well. And Crete is part of Greece, so the most prevalent, I guess you would say religion, is probably is, uh, Greek Orthodox, which is part of um, Eastern or- the or- Eastern Orthodox Church, which we talked a bit about in our church history um, study. It's not a movement that we would say is biblically faithful, uh, though they say they're Christians, they hold to some unbiblical doctrines, um, such as the veneration of saints, including Mary. And one of the major differences is that they believe you must be baptized and participate in the sacrament of communion to be saved. Um, really, they're not much different than, than the Roman Catholic Church. I think we talked about that in church history, where there was a, that split, and um, you know, the Eastern Orthodox Church kind of went a different direction um so i have some pictures i want to show you if you want to bring up that first one there i came across these when i was looking and i thought they were interesting so i thought i would just bring them up to give us kind of a visual of what it looks like and it doesn't really look much different than our area i mean we've got hills and mountains and snow and all that kind of stuff that's a picture of the highest mountain um and i don't know if i'm pronouncing it right mount ida or ida which is just over eight thousand feet um and if you go to the next one, this is one of the gorges on the island, um, which of which there are apparently many, um, popular tourist areas, things like that. Uh, okay, the third one, and this is the Masara Plain. As we start coming down in elevation, you can see the mountains in the background. Um, kind of reminds me of Italy or something like that. Um, and then the fourth one, I think I found a picture that, Perhaps is a reason why Titus might not have wanted to leave the island, right? Which is a nice, clear water beach. (laughs) It looks very (laughs) inviting and relaxing. I don't know. Just, I don't know about you, but when I think of these things as we read them in the scriptures and you hear of locations, I don't think of this for some reason. I just think of desert and that's it. But uh, it's not true. Some of these places are, are pretty beautiful. Okay, you can take those down. Those don't really have anything to do with anything. I just thought they were interesting. Thought i would show you anyway it helps me to have kind of a picture in my mind of what things look like as i read about them so now it's it's possible that um the churches existing in titus's time at least some of them had been started by paul and titus Uh, it's also possible that there were already existing churches when they first arrived Um, but who would have started them you know how how would that have come about well it could have been started by Cretans. Who had come to faith in Christ at a specific event recorded earlier in Scripture. Any idea which event I'm referring to? What was that? Yeah, you're right. Right, Pentecost. Let's go look there and, and see what it says um, in the book of Acts in chapter 2 and looking at verses 5 through 11 Acts chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And it's through the preaching of the, the gospel at Pentecost in Acts that, that we see this come about. So, chapter 2, starting at verse 5 through 11. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? And and, uh, Luke gives a list of these languages and these people. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So we see there this mention of Cretans, and here they are at at Pentecost. They're hearing the preaching of uh, the Word of God, and so they, they would have been there as Jews coming in for, for the festival. And as they hear the mighty works of God proclaimed uh, in their own language, um, many people would come to faith through this, through this preaching, through this event. And the Cretans were probably some of those who were saved, who were described here in Acts as being cut to the heart by the preaching of the gospel. Um, and this was as, as Peter was preaching and in, in verse 41 of chapter 2, it says, so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Okay, so it's likely that some of the Cretans in that mix uh, were among those who were saved, right? And they would have then taken the gospel back, to, back home with them to Crete. Um, and no doubt were, there were more converts as they brought the good news. So it is possible, also possible that some of these early converts ended up then being the ones causing problems in the Cretan church uh, because they were trying to hang on to their Jewish ceremonial laws and were trying to mix that with Christianity, uh, and, and we know these as Judaizers. As we think about how do Jews from Crete come to faith in Christ, well, they were at, we know for a fact they were at Pentecost. They were at that meeting. We know for a fact that 3,000 people came to faith that day, Um, and most likely some, if not many of those, were Cretans. But they would take these things back to the island, and perhaps not being sound in their theology, would be mixing Jewish tradition and ceremonial laws with the teachings of Christ. Um, And this is the kind of thing that Paul wanted to fix these things need to be fixed in the churches on Crete. It's interesting, interesting to think about the connections, I think, between uh, Peter's sermon at Pentecost and Christianity spreading to the island of Crete. Uh, we don't always often think of all these connections and where the preaching goes from this one location and who those people are that are hearing it and where they live and where they might take this. But we can certainly see the spreading of the gospel to the island of Crete And looking at our passage tonight, I want to read verses 1 through 4 and then spend a bit of time looking at that. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching of with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior, to Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. That's all one sentence, by the way. Verses 1 through 4. It's a long sentence. As we look at this letter tonight, I want to start by paying attention to Paul's greeting. And there's, there's nothing spectacularly different between this greeting and his other greetings, but there are differences and I think are worth noting. And in his other letters, Paul begins in a similar way, identifying himself um, and making uh, a statement about where he gets his authority to write to the churches. Um, And here are some examples I want to give you from from chapter 1, verse 1 of some of Paul's letters. I want you to listen to the words used here, and for not only the similarities, but but for some of the differences. But this is chapter 1, verse 1 of of many of Paul's letters. Romans 1, 1 says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. Okay, and this is not the entire verse, I'm just focusing right now on this portion of it. 1 Corinthians 1, 1, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, 2 Corinthians 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Galatians 1.1, Paul, an apostle not from men nor through man, but through Christ, Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Ephesians 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Philippians 1.1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Colossians 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. 1 Timothy 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. 2 Timothy 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. And Philemon 1.1, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. In, in the letter to Titus, it's not until verse 3 of our passage that we see Paul mention his authority, and he says he preaches by the command of God. And we can see from these examples in his other letters and from our passage uh, tonight that Paul starts by introduction and authority. And the authority is always the same. His authority comes from God. He says it in different ways, but it is always from God, right? Called by God, uh, called by the will of God, not from God. Men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. And, he says, by the command of God. Okay, so he, he makes it clear where his authority comes from. So from those, those phrases that I just read, what is Paul convinced of? As he writes these letters and he puts these kind of greetings in there and these credentials, what is Paul clearly convinced of? Okay, what was that? Called by God. What was the other one? So he's serving God, okay? He does, and we'll get to the purpose. For now, and he's convinced of that as well. But firstly, he's convinced of the authority, where the authority comes from. He's convinced that God has commanded him to preach the gospel. And this isn't just some crazy person, right, That's people will often say, well, God told me to. God told me to do this or that, and it's something totally off base, right? This is Paul. This is, he is actually commanded by God, uh, and we know that from Scripture. But he is, he is convinced of it as well. And he writes, like, he writes like he doesn't have a choice in the matter, doesn't he? I mean, that's what it sounds like. He writes like there's no other option for him, and really there isn't. It is his conviction that he is bound to this work. Yeah, yeah. Well, what other words did you hear in those verses that indicate Paul's mindset that he is bound to his work for Christ? In those all that list of verses I read to you, all the chapter one, verse ones, if you can remember them, do you remember anything that um, informs us Paul's mindset that he is bound to this work for Christ, some of the words he used. servant, okay? Anything else? Okay, yeah, I think that's probably the main one. Another one he calls himself a prisoner. Now when he says prisoner um, in in Philemon it's because he's actually in prison right he's a he's a prisoner for Christ. But when he says he is a servant, he is indicating really a voluntary action on his part. Um, He's willingly committing himself to serve the God who has called him and commanded him. Paul's mindset is that there is no other response to God's salvation and his command to go. So he uses words like he's a servant, and he says that he's commanded, and he's doing this by the will of God. Uh, he also often says what, what he's called to or tasked with in his letters. In other words, what his mission from God is. And I think that goes to what you were talking about a minute ago, Jeannie. And, and as we think about this, m- having a mission from God, right, we know Hollywood makes fun of those kinds of statements, right? Someone says they're on a mission from God, and everyone instinctively knows that person's either joking or crazy, right? They're on a mission from God. But Paul doesn't fit into either one of those categories. He's not joking at all, and he's certainly not crazy. He couldn't be more serious. And last week, I, I said that, this, that, that his overarching reason for writing the letter to Titus um, was so that he would be reminded and instructed to put the elders into place in the churches like he instructed him to do. That was his overarching reason for writing this letter to Titus, but there is also an overarching reason behind that. And it's expressed by Paul in verse 1 of this letter. It's it's about his mission. It's, It's about his commission from Christ to the church. And here we see Paul wording it in a way that he doesn't do anywhere else. He doesn't always state his mission in his greetings, but we do see it. In other places in his letters, he'll, he'll mention his, his mission and the purpose for what he's doing. But in particular, being in the greeting, um, he doesn't always do that. Um, what are some of the statements he makes in the greetings of his letters about what his mission is? Is his mission always the same? Does it change in connection with certain churches or with time? Well, it doesn't change with time, right? The message doesn't change. He he does indicate certain purposes relevant to a a particular church sometimes, but his overall mission is always the same. He words it differently in his greetings, though. And we have two instances where Paul states his mission in the in the opening verses of a letter. And Paul does this in Romans and in Titus. Romans 1 1, he says, set apart for the gospel. Okay, he says he is set apart for the work of the gospel. It is his mission. And then he ex- expands on that even further down in verse 5 of Romans 1 where he says, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. And so he gives us not just a clue of what his mission is, but he tells us what his mission is. He's, and, and he's talking about changing people. People's lives being changed. They're um, the is being changed. It's his mission. And the obedience of faith that he talks about there uh, in that Romans passage is, a, is about, um, um, it's a reference to individuals who repent of sin and put their trust in Christ for salvation. And this is done for the glory of the name of Christ. <clears throat> when we look at his mission statement as it were, in Titus 1, Paul's really saying he is on the same mission that we just heard about in Romans 1. Um, but he uses a phrase that isn't used anywhere else. According to Titus 1.1, here in our passage, Paul's mission is for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. Okay, he's talking about the church here. He's identifying the church by one of its other names, the elect. And the Greek word used here is eklektos, which um, it means chosen. It can also be interpreted as picked out. Picked out of what? Chosen out of what? Well, out of all there is, out of all humanity. Chosen for what? Well, for himself, for salvation. Uh, This word and its Variants are used all over the New Testament. And it means what we think it means. The the verb form of this word was used to describe what God said about Jesus. In Luke 9.35, it says, And a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my Son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Was anyone else chosen to be the Christ? No. No. He was chosen by God. For his own purposes. Now, this word is sometimes a source of consternation for people. So, I want to talk about it for a minute. We don't hear uh, that verse about God choosing his son and think it could have been just anyone. We know it had to be Christ. He was picked out of every other human, not just because he was the only one worthy, which he was but because God makes the decisions. And we don't question God's choice of Jesus, do we? Why why do we then question what God, that God might make other choices? And the word means what we think it means. God makes choices and he clearly wants us to know he makes choices. It's in the Bible. It's all over the Bible. So, who are God's elect? Who are God's chosen or picked out ones. Who are they? What's that? Okay, the ones who are saved by Christ. Sure, yeah. Everyone he saves is his elect. Christians are his elect. The church are his elect. We should understand that there are they're not Christians and the elect Right? This is not a separate group of people from Christians. This is not a separate order of super-Christians. This is every person who has or will be born again by the Spirit of God through repentance and faith um, in Jesus Christ. This is everyone on the island of Crete at that time, and you and I, if we are truly regenerate. Everyone who has come to faith in Christ is the elect. It's not a word that we should be afraid of or shy away from learning about or using with one another. It's act- this is a subject for rejoicing, not for distancing ourselves from. If you are a born-again Christian, you were chosen by God. You are his elect. Is, is that not something to embrace and celebrate? Absolutely. Absolutely. Not, of course, in pride or arrogance, which, which some people do, but in humble gratitude and praise. But in truth, nonetheless, don't be ashamed of it. So when Paul says he's, he is God's servant for the sake of the elect, he's not saying he is God's servant for everyone. He has been sent out for something. The rub is that only God knows who he's chosen. So Paul must preach to everyone, trusting God to do the calling and saving. And that's how it works. Also notice that Paul is not, Paul isn't confused about how this works. He doesn't have a problem with how God works. He's just glad to be a part of it. He doesn't try to make his message sound more inclusive so that everyone feels good. He just says it plainly. I'm doing this for the sake of God's elect. That is who I am trying to reach with the message because that is who God is saving. Again, he doesn't know who they all are, so he preaches to everyone. So can you see the focus? Can you see the, the direction, the target of Paul's mission of preaching? We should know that God is... God is after his elect, and he has, in this case, sent Paul. And Paul is well aware. Paul's not confused about his mission. This has always been God's plan. Uh, that is, it's what's going on in the world. It's, it's what was going on in the world then. It's what's going on in the world now. It is the reason Christ has not yet returned. This is all about God saving his elect, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and he's not yet saved them all. Their names are already written in the book of life, though, as if it's a done deal. But they've not all yet come to Christ. We can see how this works, and when we look at the Scriptures, in Acts 13, uh, if you want to turn there, in Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas were preaching in Antioch preaching the gospel, and they took uh, the people as they preached, they took them verbally, let's say, from Abraham all the way to the resurrection. And the people couldn't get enough. Acts 13.42 says, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. They begged them to keep preaching. And that's where I want to pick it up, in, in our reading, if, you, if we're in Acts 13, I want to start reading in verse um, 44, and we'll pick it up after the people have begged them to, to keep preaching and, and come the next Sabbath. So here in verse 44, it says, The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So do you see it there? Almost the whole city comes out, but they were not all saved. Who was saved, according to verse 48? No? I mean, they did, but that's not what it says. What's that? Those appointed, right? As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. You see, Luke doesn't write about a number or or how many people in this instance. He writes about a category. Those appointed to eternal life. Not everyone. You see, only the elect out of that number at that time now, does that mean that some of those who didn't believe at that time never believed? No. They may have been appointed to believe at a different time in their lives and came to faith later. We don't know. But what we do know from that passage is those who were appointed to believe at that time did so. Well, who does the appointing? <laughs> who, who else could do it, right? It's God. The Bible is, is dripping with this kind of language so that, so that you and I would understand the sovereignty of God and salvation. God chooses men and women for salvation, not the other way around. And Paul knew this better than anyone. Right? If you read the account um, of Paul's conversion in Scripture, would you say God chose him or he chose God? God chose him, right? Clearly, God chose Paul, named Saul at the time, God knew where Saul was was on the road to Damascus. God knew what Saul was up to. What was he up to? Going after Christians, right? With permission. He's going to arrest and persecute Christians. God knew when and where he was going to call Saul also. God God didn't make it up that day. Right, it was from before the foundation of the world. Um, in Matthew 25, 34, it says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And Paul even says in Ephesians 1, 4, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Paul includes himself in that statement of truth. He's writing to the Ephesian saints and telling them that they were chosen in Christ before, and he includes himself in that list. Well, before when? Before yesterday? Before a week ago? No, the Bible makes it clear. It's before the foundation of the world, before the world was created. That's sort of unfathomable. He didn't, God didn't decide he had had enough of Saul persecuting Christians as if he didn't know that's what he was doing or would do. God saved him at his appointed time. God made the decision in eternity past. He is the one with the book of names. God is the one who appoints and God is the one who saves. We don't know who, we don't know when, but we know that all those whom God saves are his elect. Paul understands this so much that he has committed his life to going, going after God's chosen ones. That's why Paul, it's always Paul's mission, and everything he experiences or does is seen through that lens. As Paul goes about spreading the gospel, he's looking through that lens of, going after God's elect. In 2 Timothy 2.10, Paul writes to Timothy and says, Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. He says he endures everything, all the things that he goes through, which he goes through a lot. He does it for the sake of the elect. So that is Paul's mission. The faith of the elect. And he says, for, for their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness at the end of verse 1. This is Paul saying people need to come to faith and they can only do so through knowledge of the truth. The truth about what? Well, about their sinfulness. Uh, their, their lostness, their need for a savior it's the gospel. But not only that, he also says this truth accords with godliness. And this is a reference to the the process of sanctification in the lives of believers. The godly lives of Christians progressively agrees with and looks more like the obedient life of Christ. None 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 of us have arrived, haven't made it yet, but if you've been a Christian for any number of time, you should see some progression. You think about the person you were before Christ saved you. And look at what he's done in your life. You should see fruit. You should see growth. You should see that your life is, can you say about yourself, my life now is more like Christ than it was before he saved me. We should all be able to say that to some degree. And that's what he's talking about here, that um, that their knowledge of the truth It accords with godliness. They go together. He goes on to talk about how this truth brings about hope in eternal life. And he anchors that in more truth about the nature of God and the character of God. He doesn't just leave it at that, that this brings about hope, but he anchors it. In verse 2, he says, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. So according to verse 2 then, why can Christians have hope of eternal life? Because God promised it, and he doesn't lie. Okay? We, can, we can have hope of eternal life because we know something about God. We know something about God's character, right? He made a promise, and we know he doesn't lie. He can't lie. Now, people make promises and don't keep them all the time. And that's sort of our starting point. It's, so it's hard to fathom somebody who could know everything, make promises, and always keep them. That's hard for us to, to fathom. So, But people do this all the time, make Promises break promises. Maybe it's because they were lying when they made it. Maybe they made a promise knowing that it was a lie. Maybe they really intended to keep it, but were unable to because they were never able to fulfill such a promise in the first place. How many times have maybe even you personally made promises that you realize later on, I never should have made that promise. I can't do it. God is not like that. He is absolutely a promise keeper. He is not like us. First, he never lies. He cannot lie. And Second, there's nothing he cannot do, so he cannot promise something that he is unable to deliver on. Right? How do I, how do I know he can deliver? Well, I read about him in the Bible, and he testifies to me of his sovereign power. The Spirit of God testifies to our hearts about the truth of God as we read His Word. This way, it makes sense when we read Paul's statement where he says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. How can he be sure? How can he be sure of that? Because he knows who he has believed, right? He knows truth about God, and so he can say that, and he believes it. Also notice that this promise, right, God's promise was made before the ages began. And which of us can make a promise for something even a year from now? All right, I can plan a vacation a year from now, yeah, or next week even, right? But I don't know if I'll be sick. I don't, when that time comes, and, and I don't know if somebody else will be sick when that time comes. I don't know if, if I'll have any money to be able to go on that trip. I don't even know if I'll still be alive next year. <laughs> we, there's a lot we don't know. We can't make the kinds of promises that God makes. So you see the difference between human promises and God's promises? We should see a stark difference. If this promise was made before creation, who did God make the promise to? I'd never thought about that before. We didn't exist yet, and He's making promises about salvation and eternal life. Well, He made the promise to Jesus. who was with him? Why does Jesus say what He did in John 6:37 and 38? as all that the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out for i have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me he says this because the father gave him the elect in eternity past he promised them to him then he came down from heaven to do the father's will and going to the cross to save them and then in verses 39 and 40 of john 6 He continues, Jesus said, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. You see, what the Father promised, Jesus knew they would and will come to him. God, the Father, promised that his elect would come to him. Why can he say that? Because the Father promised that all who look on him and believe will have eternal life. You and I weren't there in eternity past to hear the promise, but Jesus was. Then Paul talks about the proper time in verse 3. Says and at the proper time, manifested in His Word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. He's talking about his ministry, God's timing for Paul to be preaching His Word to the people in the first century. God has commanded him to do so and entrusted him with his task. What he's preaching is eternal life through Christ. This is not to say that God trusts Paul because of his trustworthiness. <clears throat> it's something we've got to think about. He says he entrusted him, but it's not that God trusts Paul because of his trustworthiness. God entrusted this to Paul and taught him and instructed him and empowered him and sent him. God is working through Paul to accomplish his own will. And that's what God does with us. He he empowers us through his spirit, through his word, to accomplish his will. And then he addresses his letter to Titus, his true child in a common faith. We already talked about that relationship um, last week. So I think as we look at this, just this first small section of this letter We can find some wonderful doctrines in this this opening section. He may not get into all the details, but we have seen the doctrines of the sovereignty of God and salvation. We've seen the doctrine of eternal life, the promise of eternal life. We've seen the doctrine of God's immutability, the fact that he is unchanging in that he made a promise and he will keep his promise. God does not lie. And these are truths that Paul clearly believed he needed to affirm for Titus and for the churches on Crete. These things are things that people forget. These things are things that you and I can forget when we don't read the Word of God, when we don't learn about the nature and character of God. We can forget that He is all powerful, that He is a sovereign God, and that we, when He says something, we can believe it because He doesn't lie. And we need those truths affirmed to us just as much as the, the Christians on the island of Crete needed them. So that's that first section that, that we go through here. So next time we'll, we'll continue on in, in this letter and get to when Paul starts um, talking about what he is tasking Titus with and the criteria that he's to use um, as he appoints elders in the churches So let's close in a word of prayer tonight. Father in heaven, thank you again for your word. Lord, I pray as we read it and study it that you would open our eyes to see the wonderful truths of who you are. It's those truths that are a firm foundation for us, Lord. They are things that as we learn of them, we are more grounded, we are more anchored. Lord, when the troubles of life come, when questions come, Lord, we're not shaken because we know who you are, what you've said about yourself. We believe it to be true, not because we're so smart, but because you have opened blind eyes, you have filled us with your spirit, or you have saved us through repentance and faith in Christ. We're so grateful, Lord. I pray that you, as we read your word, as we talk about your word, Lord, that you would be glorified in in these things. Glorified in our increasing knowledge of you. Help us, Lord, to do so, not to be stagnant. I thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy and your kindness to us. I thank you, Lord, that your plan and purposes are right and true all the time. That you are one who can make any and every promise because you alone are able to keep them. Because you know everything. Nothing surprises you. It's hard for us to fathom, Lord. But we, we want to be pointed to to your holiness and your majesty, your greatness, that we would understand that more and more. Thank you for the knowledge that we can have of you just in sh- a few short verses, Lord. We give you praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen.